everyone, I'm Erin G, and this is Alt Text. Just a bit of housekeeping up front, I'm at the Collision Conference in Toronto this week, the Olympics of Tech. So if you're there, reach out and say hi. I'll be speaking on the Thursday, and I hope you come check out my panel. There also won't be an episode next week because it's a long weekend here in Canada, and I need some rest. So my guest today is Jamie Rosenblatt, a partner at Golden Ventures in Toronto. He has an MBA and a JD from the University of Toronto and works closely with portfolio founders, entrepreneurs, accelerators, incubators, and the broader startup community to fund, find, and build exceptional companies. Golden is a seed stage venture firm and is sector agnostic on their investments. Jamie began his career in corporate development at O'Leary Ventures, a private early stage investment company owned and chaired by Kevin O'Leary. He then joined Osler, Hoskin and Harcourt LLP, where he practiced corporate law with a focus on mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance in the technology sector. Prior to joining Golden Ventures, Jamie was the head of business development for Avid Life Media. Our conversation is wide ranging, going from venture capital and due diligence to the broader impacts that the tech industry can have on the rest of society and so much more. And of course, just to note, Jamie's views here are his own and not representative of Golden Ventures. So please enjoy my conversation with Jamie Rosenblatt. So Jamie, thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited for this conversation. Likewise, thank you for having me. And so, you know, for our, the listeners who aren't up to speed on the tech sector, um, you work in early stage venture capital. So what exactly does that mean? Yeah, um, so venture capital is this sort of exotic subsector of finance. Uh, where folks like myself uh, look for really early stage companies. And that can be uh, as early as one individual with an idea or as you know, late as um, uh, you know, they've got a product in market, maybe a couple of customers and some early revenue. And we provide that sort of you know, injection of money that helps them sort of continue to build out uh, their company and sort of uh, bring their solution uh, or product or company to market. It's kind of the the probably the easiest analog for listeners would be think you know an institutional or professionalized version of what you see on Shark Tank or Dragon's Den, where you know we take a bunch of meetings, maybe meet a hundred companies in over the course of a month, and then we decide, hey, this is the one that we like the most. We're going to invest, you know, let's call it a million dollars. And in exchange, we're going to get 10% of the company and we're going to do our best to help them on their journey to value creation. And venture capital is just one of several different options for funding a startup. Is that right? That's right. So, um, you know, the reason why venture capital exists is, um, you know, uh, historically, it's been really hard for entrepreneurs who are using technology to hopefully build something really, really big. Uh, to to find access to capital uh, in those early days so that, you know, before the company is really making money, 
um, you know, they would have the opportunity to invest in R&D and to build out their thesis and, and product. So you couldn't go to a bank uh, to, to get a loan like you could if you were a small business or, or you know, a scale up that had assets to, to lend against, etc. Um, but, you know, options have um, uh, extended, I, I guess I, I would say, over the, the, the last little while. You can get non-dilutive funding often from sort of government innovation programs. Um, you know, there is uh, um, other debt providing options, you know, such as venture debt. Um, you know, you can raise from friends and family. You can, you can, there, there's a variety of different mechanisms that you can use. But I think for, and this is important for your viewers to know, venture capital is appropriate for people who want to build enormously large, insane standing, sounding outcomes. You know, a lot of what we talk about when we evaluate company is how big is the market? How big can this outcome be? And, you know, we're really looking and are appropriate for companies that are aimed at, you know, uh, a billion dollar plus or the quote unquote unicorn outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, I think a lot of um, people who aren't familiar with with venture capital tend to think, hey, I want to start a business. You know, maybe I'm, I'm making muffins or, you know, maybe I want to uh, spin up like a new baby goods company. Um, let's let's just talk to, you know, VCs have money. I need money. It's a perfect fit. And what what we have to sort of remind folks of is this is a very specific sort of funding for a very specific sort of company. It's it's the sort of funding where we hand it over to an entrepreneur that looks at a hundred million dollar exit and says, no, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to pass on selling this company because I want to pursue a bigger exit because I want to have a bigger impact. Yeah, I think about a company like the Sprinkles, I think cupcake company in the United States where they, or maybe it was Crumb, I don't know, some cupcake company that- sure. They just like grew so exponentially fast. And then now the cupcakes are not trending anymore. They're like having to close up shops when you, and then you have a company like Glossier, for example, that actually took venture funding because they were one of the first like D to C beauty brands before, you know, the advent of TikTok really. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up two consumer examples. Um, uh, there's a lot of debate about whether uh, those sorts of companies are appropriate for venture funding. And if you look at their performance in public markets or, you know, over the long term, um, I'd argue that they might not be uh, the best sort of companies to take mm-hmm. venture capital. Like you think about Casper mattresses as an example. Um, and so Peloton is, is a great one. Um, you know, although I will say with Peloton, there's a, um, there's a little bit more tech than a mattress, mm. right? I don't care how good your, your, your memory foam is. You're not really reinventing how we lie on a, on a bed, right? Mm-hmm. Like at least with Peloton, there's this concept of, you know, um, this, this digital production company through, uh, their, their trainers, this, you know, beautiful, elegant piece of hardware and how those sort of things, you know, work together. Um, but, uh, um, to your earlier point about like where can you get capital if you're if you're building a d2c company the really interesting thing is there's been a number of sort of non-dilutive options sort of they call it revenue-based financing that have emerged so think you know clearco um or pipe out of the us uh basically that will plug into your shopify store or your transaction history and say oh you when you spend this much on marketing you make this much in revenue uh, we'll lend you a hundred thousand uh, dollars to invest in marketing and take you know x percent uh, of your revenue over the next little while to help get you up up the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, the flip side of that is, um, uh, or just one more sort of clarifying piece on, on venture capital is we often are looking at novel technologies uh, that create a moat or defensibility so that if you're right and you start to get market share, it's really, really hard for other people to get market share too. So, you know, we, as an example, uh, Golden Ventures, which is the fund, I, fund I'm a, a partner at, you know, invested in a company called Xanadu, which is a photonic quantum computing company. Mm. And so quantum computing is, you know, more theoretical than actual at this point, but they're sort of seen as one of the three global leaders in the race for quantum supremacy. And so if they're right, they create a trillion dollar market that no one else can get into. They have a sort of near term monopoly, but the sort of monopoly that that I think everyone in society kind of likes because you invented something uh, of real value and that's why you get to capture the value. Um, so that those are the sort of ideal companies for venture, the ones that are trying to change the world through the introduction of sort of novel, meaningful technological innovation. And Cupcakes are great too though. <laughs> Maybe as a, as a, to eat, but not necessarily as a wide, like nationwide business. Sure. Um, I, this, so what you're talking about, what you do and what Golden does, it really seems very reasonable. And I think that a lot of the time venture capitalists get a bad reputation because you just hear about all of the billions of dollars that are being spent in places like Silicon Valley. And on the one hand, I think um, venture capital is a bit of a gamble, right? Because you never know what's actually going to take off. And so what's your investing philosophy and how do you decide if someone, a company is good to invest in? Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're sort of um, talking a little bit about the process of due diligence, which I'll, I'll, I'll address in a second, but um, you know, I think um, to take a step back and, and think about what you said there, it's like, Hey, this, you know, there's a billion dollars. What, what you're saying sounds reasonable. And yet I see billions of dollars being splashed around and all these, you know, you know, SoftBank invested $400 million into Zoom pizza, which is, you know, insane. It, the whole premise there was, we're going to take a van and we're going to cook the pizza on the van and it will be hotter and fresher and faster to get it to you. And we're going to put $400 million behind that idea. And from the outside looking in, that can seem in, like insane. And, you know, maybe from the inside, that can seem insane too. But uh, I think what why it seems unreasonable is because for a lot of people, they don't understand the economics and sort of thinking behind how to create, you know, returns in venture capital. And so if I could give a really simple example or a really key concept that I think is non-obvious to, to people not familiar with venture, it's this. Um, our returns or how we think about creating returns follows, follows what's called a uh, power law distribution. And so the idea there is, you take a lot of bets, you know, let's say you have a portfolio of 30 companies and the expectation is that let's call it three to five of them are going to be responsible for about 80% of the value you create through your investments. And so zeros or, um, you know, companies completely imploding and returning $0, you know, we invest a million, we get $0 back. That's not a bug. That's a feature. That is, that is part of you know, how we think about portfolio construction, right? You need to take big enough uh, swings or uh, risks such that um, your winners can be big enough to pay for your losers, can be big enough to generate the disproportionate returns associated with our asset class. Um, 
So that's my caveat. Like it may seem insane that we throw stuff against the wall and sometimes it goes to zero or more often than not, it goes to zero, but that's just part of the process. It's a high variability outcome job. And so you take a bunch of swings in a bunch of big emerging spaces where if you're right, the, the reward is huge. And if you're wrong, you know, the only thing you lost was the capital that you put at stake. Mm -hmm. um, so just a little caveat there. And then with, with due diligence, um, you know, okay. Uh, what due diligence can look like varies depending on the stage that you invest in. Um, I think where, uh, you know, the stage we invest in, which is seed. So sort of the first money that goes into a company, um, due diligence uh, is, is highly variable, but broadly speaking, I'll describe it like this. Um, you know, we're thinking about, let's call it three or four core things. The first is the team. And I'd say the team, is the most important thing that we're looking at because from the time you invest to the time that there is what we'll call a happy outcome, you know, let's call it 10 years later, the only certain thing is that there's a massive sea of uncertainty. And if you can't trust the captain of the ship to sort of navigate that sea, you know, you're gonna have a bad time. Mm. And so we're looking at the team composition. Who are these people that we're entrusting with the capital to make these decisions? Do they have industry expertise? Do they have a track record of success? What's their novel insight into the market? Do they have complementary skill sets? Do they have a history of working together successfully? There's a variety of different things that we do to assess sort of, let's call it both quantitative and qualitative factors about their, their backgrounds that uh, we use to inform whether or not we think they're the sort of person who is well-equipped to tackle the problem that they're trying to solve, uh, you know, as well as, um, you know, if they're the sort of person who is is appropriate for sort of going on the venture journey. Um, that can include references and all the rest of that stuff. Um, then, uh, you know, I'd say the net in order of importance, the next thing we're looking at is the market. Um, you know, I mentioned, hey, we need a billion dollar outcome here. Well, if the market is only, you know, in total, a $250 million market, you know, it's going to be something that we tend to avoid because it just, it's not big enough. Now, the, the, the contra to that is, you know, the market for Bitcoin in 2012 was 250 million, mm -hmm. but you know, it was, if you were savvy about it, it was growing and it was going to get massive. So, you know, it's okay to be a small market as long as the tailwinds are there to become really, really big. And then on the flip side, you know, we're unlikely to do a deal in, you know, welding as an example, uh, or, or, you know, sorry, welding's maybe not the best example, but like Dunder Mifflin from the office, right? Like, you know, paper isn't a growing industry, it's a shrinking industry. And so even though it's kind of big right now, the trends suggest that uh, it, it's not going to be super big uh, going forward. Sort of like investing in a better horse when the, uh, uh, the, the internal combustion engine is around the corner. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, okay, we talk about team, we talk about market, then we're looking at sort of product and traction. You know, what proof points do they have around what they're building? And, uh, you know, what is the customer feedback? Do they love what they're building? Is it only slightly better than what other people have? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So at the risk of rambling, I'll sort of, you know, use that as a loose structure, but that's that's how you can think about due diligence. And I mean, you may not know the answer to this, but in the case of someone or an organization who is investing in uh, companies, like, for example, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, um, who sure. invested in FTX, um, do, would they have similar due diligence processes or, or would they kind of do their own? 
or something different, I guess. No. So, you know, um, venture capital, as I said, is like this small, weird sort of subsect of like what people call private capital. So, you know, you have the public markets, like stock exchanges, stuff like that. And then you have the private markets. And so at one end, you have like angel investing and venture. And at the other end, you have sort of like, you know, uh, private equity uh, and, and you know, pension funds, right? Um, and, and so as you move along that spectrum and you get later and later stage, there's more and more proof points about a company. And so the degree of diligence that you're both able to conduct and expected to conduct as the check sizes increase is much, much higher, right? Um, you know, the, the Ontario Teachers Plan uh, investing in FTX, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's an example of where things can go wrong and there's a breakdown in due diligence and there's a breakdown in some of the, the signals that people use to sort of make decisions in this industry. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's not particularly unique, particularly when there's, you know, uh, fraud at play, right? Like, you know, you look at the board of Theranos and you're like, holy crap, like, you know, these, these people seem pretty sophisticated. Like this is the who's who, right? So um, I think it, I, I, I think like, um, you know, the whole sort of concept of capitalism is creative destruction, right? Like, you know, you, you, you mm. build and then you break down and you get better. And I think like instances where, uh, you know, something like FTX or, or Theranos happens are an opportunity to reflect on your decision-making process and root out the bad so that you can be better the next time. Um, you know, that might sound sort of like, hey, like, you know, the, these people, uh, it might sound like an abdication of responsibility or like that I'm not trying to assign blame to someone, but like, I don't have enough familiarity with how the decision was made in that particular case to sort of say, but like, yeah, like, I mean, it's my pension, like, you know, be better, right? Like, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talked about this abdication of responsibility when, you know, getting kind of caught up in the moment. And I think that was one definitely the case in Theranos because it was just like such an opportunity to really change the world like you were saying and so I think that that really caught people caught people's attention and like willingness to buy into this like hope of what was possible but then you've got Sam Bankman freed with FTX on the other hand who was actually kind of this people I think kind of viewed him as a savant and he kept selling this bill of goods that really wasn't there and that kind of became like this myth making. And so to what extent is, does, I guess the founder and this like mythos or this myth around them kind of contribute to uh, irresponsibility, I guess, on the part of investors and how much does FOMO play into it? Yeah, I mean, well, like, look, like myth making, you know, celebrity worship, influencer culture, like, you know, it's it's pervasive over the last number of years. And maybe just everyone lost their minds during COVID and that's what <laughs> caused it. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll never know. But like, I don't think that it's, you know, it, it, it's maybe a little higher profile in some cases in, in venture, but like, um, it, it's certainly not unique over, you know, what's happened during the social media era of the last sort of 10 years, right? you know, Dr. Oz is, Dr. Phil, are they even doctors, right? And yet yeah. here we are like popping pills and taking supplements and, you know, listening to, you know, uh, psychoanalytical advice from, you know, whatever influencer is famous for, you know, insert banal sort of solipsistic worldview here. But um, 
to answer your, your question, which is like, how much does the founder story or myth uh, contribute to, um, to, to your responsibility on investors part? Like a lot, right? Um, you know, whenever your capital needs as a company exceed your business results, the founder's story is what bridges that gap. They're going to tell you a story about the future, about what they're going to do with your capital, about how they're going to transform these inputs to those outputs. And so the founder's narrative is extraordinarily important. Um, now, going back to my earlier point about later stage companies, if there is accessible, obvious things, uh, obvious information out there that could have sort of negated that worldview, could have shown you that it was impossible and you don't you know, uncover it uh, because you were simply lazy or, you know, FOMO made you move too quickly. Um, you know, that's a big, big problem. Uh, and that's your fault. And you should be held responsible for it. Now, if the, if the, the evidence is being obfuscated by, you know, fraudulent behavior, it's a like little bit fairness, murkier there. Right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's a little bit, mur it's a little bit murk uh, murkier murkier uh in that in that particular case um but yeah like it, i i would also say like who the the person investing is like they're the standard we hold them to changes like pension funds mm. like that's the public purse that's a very different situation than when you have sort of private individuals making their own choices like if they don't want to do the diligence more power to them right like right. that's their choice free market right but like i think you know where people sort of get their backs up is is uh when you know uh, someone like a pension, you know, invest in something speculative, maybe they don't check all the boxes. Like I could see why people would be upset in that particular case. Um, and then to just answer your question about FOMO, like the last three years, like during COVID where, you know, we're in a slightly different economic um, world now, but like, you know, the job of being an investor was, was relatively unpleasant in some ways because, you know, valuation skyrocketed. You know, you would get a like, I mean, this isn't uh, a, a true story. It's just representative of the experience. Like you pick up your phone. It's like someone's like, hey, I'm building, you know, um, a cupcake shop for the metaverse. Like, do you want to invest five million dollars on a 30 million dollar valuation? You have 15 minutes to decide. Um, every other investor in the world wants to do this deal. Like, what about you? And and you just sit there and you're like, what the hell just happened? Like, you know, this is insane. Like, is it actually worth this much? Like, well, if like, you know, insert name brand Silicon Valley fund is leading the round and like, it must be like, yeah, like I, I want to be, I want to be part of that. Right. Um, so a lot of people did think like that and made a lot of bad decisions, but you know, for those people who sort of, you know, have, have been doing this for a little while and who are, who are thoughtful about their approach, like, you know, you recognize it for what it is and you sort of stay true to your principles and hopefully that guides you somewhere beneficial. Do you think AI is experiencing a FOMO moment similar to what Web3 and crypto did a couple of years ago? Yes and no. Um, yes, because I think people are putting valuations on companies that they don't deserve and they're just sort of like, this is going to be huge, right? Um, but I do think that there are, you know, real uh, technological advances that are sort of like, AI in some respects is like, you know, uh, an overnight success 40 years in the making, right? Mm -hmm. Like large language models and chat GPT and all of this stuff is so obviously valuable to anyone, whether you have a technical background or not, who interacts with it, right? So like, you know, like FOMO is like a little dismissive of the, the, the self-evident sort of awesomeness 
of like asking ChatGPT to write your best man speech or, you know, asking ChatGPT, like, you know, with my daughter who's three years old, I'm like, you know, hey, like, you know, let, let's have ChatGPT, like, tell us a bedtime story. Like, what are the ingredients of the story? She's like, tell me a story about, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich who falls in love with a chocolate chip cookie and they fly to Mars, like real example. Yeah. And it spits out like this really fun story for us to read together. Like, so and, and, and it's, it's adorable, but like, and then you talk to like people who are engineers and they're like, yeah, like half my code is now written by chat GPT. And then you talk to drug discovery companies. They're like, we're trying to put as much data into this as possible right now, because we think it's going to have the answer to X, Y, and Z. So um, I push back on your, uh, on the sort of FOMO thing, just because it's like anyone who looks at this thing, it's clear there's a lot of fucking value right now. Right. On the other hand, um, that doesn't justify like, you know, the prices, it doesn't justify just making decisions without doing diligence because you're scared someone else is going to get in there. But like, mm -hmm. I think, I think the hype around it is warranted in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think that's fair. So you mentioned that, um, during the pandemic, you were extremely busy and it was a terrible, not necessarily terrible, but it was a challenging time <laughs> to be an investor. Um, less fun, so <laughs> less fun. It's still a very privileged role, right? Like let's not get it twisted. It was less fun. Yeah probably higher stress just because you're having to make those fast decisions. Um, and so during that time, Canada saw an increase in VC funding and kind of like the golden age of tech. And it seemed like 2021 and 2022 were kind of outliers in Canadian VC funding. And now post pandemic, VC investment has fallen to pre pandemic levels and then lower, in way lower. Sorry, I think that was just for like Q, Q1. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and then in May, the Globe and Mail reported that uh, many Canadian startups were running out of money and filing for creditor protection. And so what are your thoughts on the current state of Canada's tech landscape? And do you think VC funding will pick up again? Or is this the same or, or sorry, the new or like slash same pre-pandemic normal? Um, I think that uh, Canada's ecosystem uh, has a lot of the long-term ingredients to continue being successful and growing. Um, and so I think, and I've made the comment before that, you know, it, it's a bit of a rising tide situation. Rising tide raises all boats. So when I started in venture, let's say seven years ago, the community was much, much smaller. It was hard to get the, the attention of U.S. investors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and we invest across North America. So like we had the, the, the benefit or always have had the benefit of seeing sort of both sides of the border and understanding the different mechanisms that are happening. Um, and so, you know, we have grown since then by like exponentially. And I don't think that we give up all of those gains um, by any stretch, but like, yeah, like I think that this is a tough period where, you know, you learn who's in it for the long haul. And then a lot of the people who sort of dip their toes in because of, you know, the opportunity for, you know, wealth generation, or it was exciting, or, you know, zero interest rates, whatever the, the explanation you want to use is, you know, th those people will prove to be sort of tourists in this asset class, and like, they'll leave and then eventually come back. But like, I think the genie's out of the bottle, we have too much technical talent here, we have too appropriate a immigration policy um, that allows us to continue to attract and retain great talent. Um, you know, there's some structural support from the government and others in terms of like uh, ensuring the existence of a venture capital ecosystem, you know, 
and just the general zeitgeist and attention on sort of entrepreneurship and building something great. Um, you know, there's too much of that in this sort of like ether for, for people, um, you know, not to continue to be excited, not to continue to view entrepreneurship as a viable career path, whereas maybe 30 years ago they didn't. So, um, you know, the reasonable answer is, you know, 2020, 2021 was insane. Uh, that was way too much, like, uh, you know, um, and, and so, but like, but going forwards, we're going to continue the general trajectory up, upwards um, um, and, and continue to grow from pre-pandemic levels, et cetera. Um, I don't know, like I, I also sometimes say, um, you know, there's simultaneously too much and not enough capital in mm. uh, simultaneously too much and not enough venture capital or innovation capital in in Canada. So uh, there's a lot of nuance to the answer, but I don't I don't know that anyone listening will will want to hear me ramble on that. So <laughs> I mean, I would probably beg to differ. Um, what uh, what what are some of the like? So like, I definitely know that like there are a lot of people who are very passionate about tech and business in Canada and. Toronto and Vancouver always seem to be kind of fighting it out as to who has the better tech ecosystem. And then Calgary's up there kind of being like, Hey, sure. like, don't forget us. Um, what are some of the like uh, negative effects of these, like of the changing landscape? Because I think about in BC, you know, Vancouver has a very robust um, tech innovation tech ecosystem but the cost of living is just so high and so therefore a lot of people are moving to either victoria or the interior to because the cost of living is lower and there is still um, pretty good support for innovation in those places but then be with like that movement it's now leading to the cost of living rising in those areas and so i think about this like I don't know, kind of like gentrification of like these places where, which is probably not the right term, but uh, of these places where people are moving because uh, the cities like Vancouver and Toronto are just so, so expensive. Totally. Um, you know, like part of me wants to say like, you know, don't don't let the tail wag the dog in this conversation. Like to point the finger at tech, which is unequivocally like a tiny industry relative to like everything else that's going on, as like the cause of and source of like the cost of living crisis that's being experienced across North America and more broadly across the world. Like, I mean, you know, like let's talk I about mean, the. I mean, it's definitely of, no, no, it's no, definitely no, a no. contributing factor in places like San Francisco. Sure, but like I um maybe right like. You know, and you might be like, maybe, like, are you insane? Like, you know, like, have you been to San Francisco? And like, yeah, like I have. And, you know, but, uh, you know, you want to talk about like real estate development policies and why they don't sure. allow like people to build more supply and, you know, all, all the rest of it, right? Yes, there are a lot um, of so, disincentives. Totally. And like, man, like I have like a lot of views on on sort of gentrification generally and like, you know, cost of living and this stuff. But like, I'll, I'll start by like addressing the, the very specific question that you asked, which is like, you know, how do I feel about tech's role in this? On the one hand, I feel like optimistic and hopeful because things like Zoom and, you know, remote work are things that were brought into the popular culture by tech 
and are things that allow us to move to other lower cost of living environments and continue to work. So in some respects, it offers a solution to the problem, right? And, you know, you might say, well, it's like, but that doesn't solve Toronto's cost of living problem. It's like, well, like, look, you know, you know what, it, uh, uh, it doesn't solve your clinging to Toronto as the only place to live problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it creates like a whole bunch of other places where you would be happy to live and, you know, you're, you're enjoying the amenities that are there and tech enabled you to move there, you know, like there was a New York Times podcast recently that talked about a bunch of people that moved to New York to lower cost of living areas and, it was the cheesiest episode because everyone was so happy. You know, it's like, I lived in a studio apartment. Now I'm in Dallas and I opened up my cupcake yes. shop and like, look how big yes, my house is, you know that. what I mean? Yeah. So, so I, I mean, like, uh, you know, tech offers a solution. And I think some of the problem is a recasting of our own expectations in terms of what we want and where we want to be and openness to trying new things, right? Like the U.S. has always been far better at economic mobility than we have in terms of like moving state to state for work. Mm -hmm. In Canada, it's like, I want to live in two places or I like, you know, what, what, am, what am I really doing here? So, um, you know, that's one one piece of the, the tech gentrification question. Um, the more interesting thing for me is um, the inequality of uh, reward in tech. Um, you know, uh, you are able to build um, really, really big companies with relatively few people. And then you are able to, you know, concentrate those who receive disproportionate rewards amongst like the founders and, you know, uh, uh, senior leadership class. And so, you know, um, you might like, like WhatsApp was acquired for like, you know, a kajillion dollars. And I think like there were only like 18 people at the company. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, well, that's kind of messed up. Like if, if we as a society, you know, if we build these massive companies and there's not a ton of people benefiting from them anymore, like, what does that say? Like, do we really want to be creating a class of like the ultra rich and not figuring out a way to distribute, you know, more of that downwards? Um, that to me is like the big question about sort of tech is like the distribution of rewards right because again i don't think that they are responsible for gentrification i think that they are responsible for creating and accelerating you know this really stark economic inequality that i personally am super uncomfortable with and and so like i i find that i mean i think the pandemic exacerbated this but we've just kind of like lost this idea of community we've lost and like i think we've kind of distributed ourselves in into online communities rather than like our community, like our neighbors and what have you. And I think that when I am, I don't know, trying to be politically engaged, voting, whatever, and I'm trying to decide who I'm going to vote for, I look at, well, none of these policies are going to benefit me personally because I'm unmarried. I have no children. So I get no tax breaks. I get nothing really in terms of like benef like benefits sure. from the government. So I'm like, okay, well, how can my vote contribute to equality and a better life for other people? And I think that a lot of people, regardless of whether they're in tech, but kind of focusing on tech because I think there's more of a, you know, they, they're looking generally for less government intervention in terms of like business involvement and regulation and that sort of thing and not necessarily looking at kind of the social policies that could improve the lives of others. And so I think that's where I'm kind of getting with like the community where I'm like, how can I help other people where like a lot of other people are like, how can the government help me personally? 
like, I mean, I, I think the thread you're sort of getting at is like, you know, if I made a comment about the distribution of uh, reward and tech being disproportionate for certain people versus other people, you know, um, more, more broadly speaking, like, I think it, you know, it speaks to this idea that people are more individual, individually centered versus, you know, community, community mm -hmm. uh, oriented. And, you know, is tech making that worse, right? Like, uh, is, is tech making uh, this sort of focus on me, 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 or, um, sort of louder and more pervasive? Or is it, you know, not necessarily tech, but people who are looking for benefits for themselves and their business, whether that's tech or otherwise, rather than, you know, it's, try it's trying to balance the like, who should, who should I prioritize myself or I guess my community? So like, I mean, if I were to, if I were to respond to sort of like uh, the piece about like, have we lost a sense of community as like a society and like, are we like, you know, um, very sort of individualistic or solipsistic in our sort of view of the world? Um, it's like, sure. Like, I think we're going through a moment right now as a civilization, right? Like, or, or, or as a, you know, um, the, the last 20 years has been pretty wild, right? Like if you look at, you know, participation in uh, religious, like those who identify as religious or, or having a sense of spirituality, it's like gone way, way, way down. Um, you know, if you think about, uh, um, the, the public supports for, uh, um, if you look at like just what economics requires of you in terms of child rearing, you know, um, you have both parents, uh, uh, and, and you've had huge advances in, in gender equality, although it obviously hasn't been solved. Um, but like you have both parents in the workforce now. You have grandparents that are working longer and longer hours or or may or may not be around. And so you like you're relying on sort of the public purse to some degree to, to help raise your children. You have less time because, you know, there's there's more stuff going on. There are more options. And so like it's it's natural in that context to think that people have become a little bit unmoored from their surroundings because the the institutions that they relied on, whether it was religious, social or otherwise, you know, have sort of uh, eroded and nothing sort of risen up out of those ashes to take its place at this point. And so then you go online where, you know, uh, um, you know, people are just sort of dopamine fed these little snippets mm. of self aggrandization. And like, yeah, like if, if we all turned away from, you know, the church and, and social centers, and then just went to pray at the altar of Instagram, you know, you probably shouldn't be surprised that people are more focused on themselves than they are on the needs of other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether that's a point in time and part of the, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, unrelenting march towards, you know, humanity becoming worse, I can't say that. Like, hopefully something comes and takes its place, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like, I think, you know, for very obvious reasons or, you know, very um, reasons that aren't particularly hidden, sense of community has eroded over time yeah yeah I've, I've uh I've been feeling really uh <laughs> not great about things lately I mean but like you shouldn't you, you should feel great about things like I, everyone forgets how terrible like you know it, it was you know 50 sure. years ago right like like we have made so like I kind of think of it like, you know, people talk about like snowflake culture, uh, which I do think is a real thing. And like my pet theory is that like, as you move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, people just complain about more shit, right? Because like they, they have more time and comfort to complain about stuff that doesn't actually matter when you look at us from like 60,000 feet above, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like the greatest generation, quote unquote, it's, you know, 
<laughs> it's like I would have spent my 20s fighting in a war yeah. and watching lots of people die. And then I would come back and it's like I had like, you know, if I got a formal education or a higher education would be a flip of a coin. And like, sure, like, you know, Gen Z's and everyone else are like, hey, but you could have bought a house for five bucks and had a car for like 20 cents. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, but like, did you ignore the part where like 30% of my cohort died a gruesome, lonely death? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So my pet theory is like snowflake culture and all this stuff that people like to bemoan millennials like myself or Gen Z's about is, uh, um, you know, a product of the fact that like things have gotten so much better and we're like that we fail to realize just how much more difficult it used to be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that I think. I don't necessarily agree with you, but I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think that they're like, it exists on a spectrum, right? And I think if Good. you And are... by the way, I'm not invalidating anyone's feelings about like, it's, it's not a comment on like, you know, whether or not the things that people complain about are problematic or I agree or disagree with them. Um, it's just a comment on my optimism about the fact that things are getting 100%. better. Yes, yes. And I, and like, unfortunately, you know, it's especially, you know, we're, we're talking during June, Pride Month. And, you know, the LGBTQ plus community is like under attack. And like, I know several people who are queer and trans who are getting attacked and harassed online and in person. And like, it's very, very upsetting to me. Um, and so like, it is unfortunate that in some instances, things have to get better before they get worse, sorry, get worse before they get better. And yeah. So, so, but like, it's interesting, right? Um, like without engaging on any of the specific issues, right? And not commenting, like accepting everything you said as like completely true. They are being attacked, all this stuff. Um, do you think it is easier, uh, like not easier? You and I can talk about this. Mm -hmm. Lots of, and it's part of the general conversation. You know, if you transported them all to like, uh, you know, 1940, are things better than yeah. for them? Or is it just not talked about and horrible things are being done and yeah. no one even cares because it's it, that group isn't even on the social consciousness, right? Yeah. So I think the conversation and like our awareness of the horrible things is a is part of the transition to a better future for all of us mm -hmm. that's inclusive and, and and everything else. But my general point is like I'm an optimist. I think that's part of what makes you a good tech investor, to be honest, to tie it back to like you oh, know, the this whole conversation. You need to be optimistic about the future because you're investing in the future. And so what I'm saying is there's a ton of bad shit happening today. Thousand percent. I think that, um, you know, in a world where people are feeling unmoored and sad and anxiety and depression are on the rise, I think it's important to just remind yourselves that you go back 50 years, it was objectively worse mm -hmm. and your life will feel a lot better when you remember that. Yeah, I think like, yeah, on his face, definitely agree. And it's just I know I'm yeah. sort of papering over a thousand micro examples. Hundred like, percent, but know, that's but okay. Like, I, I'm 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 not saying like don't talk or engage with like the problems of today. I'm just you know to your point about I'm feeling like like we're heading in the wrong direction. I'm like that's not a healthy place to be. You know, hundred percent. And I, I what I think is also important is like learning to engage in real discussions about issues um from like a very humanistic perspective right like just constantly like accusing people like if it's right and like deserved then sure but like also like there needs to be conversations about issues in like a meaningful way 
And I think that would contribute to just like a general better understanding and like environment for everyone. Yeah, I mean, like, if you want me to disagree with that, like, I, I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> that's what me, you're. That's me being uh, an optimist. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Like, I, yeah, no, totally. Um, but yeah, like, I, I think that, like, but, but I mean, part of that, I, I think that there's a lot of um, uh, deliberate things that people could do to in, encourage and foster that sort of stuff. Like, even, even the media they consume, you know, and and all the rest of it. But mm-hmm. that's a longer conversation for another day. Sure, absolutely. Um, just to tie it up, because I know you have to get back to your day. Um, you know, you said you're an optimist, and that helps you be be a tech investor. So, what uh, what is your what are your thoughts on Canada's innovation ecosystem generally, and like how can we continue to foster that growth? Since you already said you feel good about it generally. I think that um, in order to foster or to continue to foster Canada's sort of innovation economy, um, I think we need to be thoughtful about the outcomes that we want to drive are, and um, you know what the best way to uh, um, sponsor and invest in those uh, levers are. Um, I think that there are a lot of short-term. It's a complicated question. It is a very complicated <laughs> question because it requires an understanding of how the government has supported it historically and how it's shifting its support now and what the changes and priorities are. And like a lot of things in government, the concern often is that, you know, you're on your way to what is a long-term goal, building a sustainable, um, strong innovation economy, right? Um, and then somewhere along the way, uh, short-term thinking and short-term outcomes tend to sort of drip in. And all of a sudden you have this misallocation of dollars towards things that feel good in the short term, but actually are leaving you with sort of a house of cards in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, in the here and now, I want to continue to see uh, investment in the long-term growth rather than the short-term feel-good wins as it relates to tech. Um, that means uh, uh, continuing to invest in, in immigration policies that allow us to make it easy for great technical talent to arrive here. Um, that means continuing to support sort of uh, the great public research institutions we have that are the centers for a lot of the innovation that happens. Uh, you know, that means supporting, you know, it, in my view has changed on this, supporting uh, um the the sort of accelerator and uh, uh, accelerator and incubator ecosystems uh, that exist here, investing in strong IP protection uh, domestically for a lot of the sponsored stuff that happens. Um, you know, the last thing you want is a, a company that creates great IP out of Canadian research institution where you know it's headquarters here to be just acquired by Google and all that mm-hmm. IP is like lost forever, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a lot of thoughtfulness that's required on on the long-term sort of uh, um, ingredients. And my fear is that I'm seeing things that suggest that they be maybe moving towards shorter term stuff that feels good, but isn't necessarily what we need to ensure that 20 years from now, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the New Yorks and Chicago's of the world as secondary tech ecosystems. Because PS, no one's ever been Silicon Valley, at least not during my lifetime. Yeah, no kidding. Um, that was really interesting. Hmm. Lots to think about. Anyway, thank you so much for chatting with me. I had a fun time. <laughs> So did I. Uh, And now I'm going to go eat some cupcakes because they're on my mind. Well, that does it for this episode. Like I said, I'll be back in two weeks 
after our long weekend here in Canada. In the meantime, you can catch me on Twitter at Aaron underscore G. I'm also on Blue Sky and of course on Instagram. See you next time.